Hi there, and welcome to Talking Commodities, the podcast series where leaders in commodities trading, procurement, risk management, and sourcing come to share truly actionable insights based on real-world experiences with the biggest global companies. Talking Commodities is brought to you by the JP Morgan Center for Commodities at the University of Colorado Denver Business School. The first center of its kind, offering educational programs and research focused on commodities, taught by experienced industry experts. Go to business.ucdenver.edu slash commodities to find out more. And Chai, a London technology business who help companies secure more margins, stable prices, and better outcomes. Chai has developed an intuitive web application that provides users with crucial insights and commodities price predictions made by applying artificial intelligence to all of the data that matters, from satellite imagery to freight data. To get access to Chai, go to chaipredict.com. That's C-H-A-I predict.com. Now, over to Stephen Butler, Chief Commercial Officer of Chai, and Tom Brady, Executive Director of the JPMCC, for this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Talking Commodities. Today, for the first time, we've a slightly different approach, and we are being joined by two expert guests to discuss all things sugar. So my first guest is Paul Steed, who is Senior Global Price Risk Lead at Mars, and Stefan Tomkew, who is a Senior Sales Account Executive at ADM Investor Services. Since 2011, Paul has been right at the heart of price risk management within Mars. As a global price risk manager for sugar, Paul is charged with developing innovative strategies for managing and optimizing prices. Aside from sugar, Paul has also got significant input regarding energy and packaging, which are two crucial categories for the business within the Mars group. Stefan has more than 15 years of experience in commodity markets, specifically within grains, providing market coverage and hedging solutions to corporates, financial institutions, and hedge funds. Stefan is originally from Brazil. He moved to the US in 2012. I was invited by Jefferies as one of the people responsible for starting their Latin American derivatives desks in New York. In 2015, Jefferies decided to get out of the commodities business and closed a deal with the French bank's Société Générale to absorb their book of commodities clients. And as part of this deal, Stefan was transferred to the SockGen group along with the portfolio clients and had stayed there until 2019. After this period, he then moved to ADM Investor Services, where he currently works and provides coverage, clearing, and execution services to both commercials and financial institutions in the grains markets. Stefan and Paul, you are very welcome, and it's great to talk to you today. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks, guys. So just for our audience, just a quick little bit of background. So whereabouts are you guys actually based? I'm happy to go first. So my home is in Connecticut. I have not been to an office for over a year when uh, I guess when I go back, we actually just built a new headquarters in Newark, New Jersey. So eventually that that'll be uh, where most of us will be going, but otherwise have been in, in uh, based in Connecticut. Very good. Okay. And Stefan? I'm based in New York, uh, have been working remotely also uh since, of course, the beginning of the uh, pandemic, but started to come back to the office. It started to the, the return process uh, this week. Actually, this week is my first week back to the office. 
Very good. Excellent. Okay, well, look, thank you for that, guys. I think what we'll do is, um, we, as usual, we normally start off with a bit of a chat around the markets. Uh, and I know Tom has got a couple of questions he wants to start with. So, uh, so Paul, uh, you know, first off, uh, you know, what do you make of the, of the global sugar market over the past couple of years? So we've had, I guess, a, a tale of two different markets in the sense um, sugar is very linked to oil through global ethanol programs. And I don't think anybody had bargained for how lockdowns would work. You know, oil famously went negative for a few minutes last year and, and that dragged uh, sugar down with it. So, you know, last year was all about a very recessionary environment. Um, and I think also people were worried about demand and the whole host of issues, I think, would, related to the pandemic. And then this year, we've really flipped where, you know, now everybody's concerned around super cycles and commodity inflation. And so, again, I think there's a, a bit of a story in sugar, but it's really also traded with the uh, recovery in oil prices. So, you know, it's been a, obviously a, a very interesting uh, period. And, and in a very short amount of time, we've kind of experienced the depth of a bear market where the world is going to end. And now, you know, I guess depending on which side of the market you're on, uh, it's either euphoria or the the uh, depression of a bull market where um, people don't know where it's might finish before it's all over. That's actually a very interesting observation. Um, I, you know, and as you say, we've gone from you know the situation literally this time last year where. It was all doom and gloom. And now, you know, looking at commodities prices, it's up, up and away. Stefan, what are your thoughts on how this might play into the wider ags markets? Not necessarily just for sugar, but I mean, how do you think that's going to pan out? Yeah, well, we are now experiencing the frenzy, right? So everybody's in the, the mentality of the return, the back of the office and, and all the return of the activity. And uh, we experienced a period, of course, of a very depressed price, as Paul mentioned, across the board. And uh, now we are seeing a recovery on the back of a situation specifically with, with China. So for the grains market, I believe that we have a very strong background, uh, all because of this reconstruction and the rebuild of the hog uh, herd. And this is bringing uh, a lot of support to the grains uh, in general, because they need to also replenish the state stocks that have been diminished during the pandemic. So I see that uh, we are in a very constructive phase, but of course, a lot of uncertainty ahead of us. We are still in the beginning of the growing season for the Northern Hemisphere. And with the current supply and demand situation with stocks and, and use ratio in historical low levels, we don't have too much room for weather issues. So we need to have basically a perfect weather to avoid any further fireworks and, and more, uh, you know, stress in the market to the upside. Um, you know, Paul, back to you, you know, how do you see uh, demand playing out for sugar, you know, as things, you know, are on track to kind of return to normal over the next few years? Yeah. So what we saw last year, I think, you know, people got very, very bearish on demand. And it was interesting to me because sugar is a staple. It's a really efficient um, energy source. If you look at lower income countries and for higher income countries, um, we saw a shift in supply chains. You know, obviously the food service sector was was closed, but people did much more in home baking. And so and if you look at 
you know, public company results, at the end of the day, it wasn't such a terrible year. Demand has definitely been decelerating. And to some extent, you know, some markets are, are somewhat saturated on a per capita basis. A lot of governments are pursuing tax and labeling strategies for health reasons. But the trend that sugar consumption basically grows with the population is still intact. So, you know, I, I think most people in their statistics have a percent and a half of, of growth year on year. But there's a lot of discussion, you know, this year, obviously, because uh, still trying to figure out how the pandemic and, you know, maybe some of the, the new consumer behaviors have, have impacted demand. And just just a you know longer term, is there a is there with the sugar demand with with consumers? Is there a, is there an income factor that plays in? You know, as c- personal wealth increases or, or a country's wealth increases, do, how does that impact demand? Yeah, so you know it's interesting in a few different ways. If you go back forty years, a lot of the world's biggest importers were high income countries, and that allowed us uh, to have a lot more volatility to the upside. And so, you know, particularly if you look at the 1970s, we had sugar prices, you know, they got as high as 66 cents and then about 40 cents because, you know, places like the U.S. or Europe, which were importing back then to to a larger degree, are not very price sensitive. And that really changed, you know, some of the biggest importers now are, are middle income countries. So in the past, we've seen when sugar prices spike, there is a threshold price where you start to see demand impacted. And it's, you know, not just because of import parities, it's just because people don't have the, the money in their wallets to, to consume. So that's a factor. You know, in general, sugar is a pretty inexpensive commodity, you know, relative to the amount of energy it gives you. It's a really efficient source of, of energy for people. So it's quite resilient in, in that sense. And there's probably a substitution effect. I'm sure that, you know, some of what was going on last year, if you're eating less steak, you're, you know, probably going to make it up with some other products, including uh, maybe some sugar. Good. Thanks for that, Paul. That's some useful insight on the demand side. I'd like to just quickly turn to the supply side. Now, I know that there has been weather issues in South America recently, and it has affected a number of different agricultural commodities, sugar included. Do you see any other global supply risks that, or anything that you are mindful of right now on the supply side that people need to be aware of? I'm sure in the markets that he follows, Stefan will concur. You know, when you're trading a lot of these commodities, you're trading the weather. Brazil to sugar is what Saudi Arabia is to oil. So, you know, it's 40, 50% of, of supply. We've had a, a, a very severe drought there um, in the south of Brazil for the past year. So, uh, and over last year, we had a, a, a two-year drought in Thailand. And so um, it, sugar is definitely a, a supply-driven market rather than a demand. You know, the, what usually moves these markets is, and particularly a weather event. So I think, you know, we have in, in-house meteorologists. Obviously, that's something that people uh, look at. You know, now it's with satellites. Um, so there's always something to worry about. The fact is, there's plenty of sugar in the world. It's more just a question of, of price. So I think a bit different than the grains. Our global stocks to use are, are probably fine. And, you know, if somebody needs to buy more sugar, they can. It's They may have to do it uh, a few dollars higher than where we are today. But um, there's certainly plenty of sugar in the world. 
Okay, interesting. Thank you. And yes, I mean, as, as you say, you know, from this time last year, we were trading around about sort of just above sort of 10 cents a pound. We're now touching 17. And ags have obviously, you know, they touched eight-year highs, albeit some of them have drifted lower on the grain side. Stefan, if you don't mind me putting you on the spot, have you got any view or any outlook or where do you think prices on sugar or ags could be potentially over the next six months or so? Yeah, no, I, I see that the market is in a very constructive phase. So we have as a background and a, and a supportive uh, situation for the market, the Chinese demand for feed. So, uh, and also uh, the, uh, the restocking program. So they basically sold out all the state reserves that they had, and now they're starting to replenish. And also you have the recovery of the pork herd over there that is also increasing the demand for feed. So uh, in that sense, I see a very constructive market. And also on top of that, we also have a, a very strong incentive across uh, the board in the world for uh, more renewable renewable sources of energy and and that uh, put biodiesel in in the bright spot as well so that's also a, i think it's it's a very good for the market in terms of of demand and will depend of course of the uh, supply if we will have any disruption in terms of weather and that's the most important part that we can we need to monitor now it's weather basically what the USDA have been projecting in terms of area it's not really enough to bring back the the stock layer, stock to use ratio back again to the comfort levels, back up again to comfort levels. So we will need basically a perfect weather here in US and also a very uh, stronger and a very big area in the new crop for South America. And then for the new cycle in the South America, I, I think that we can start to visualize and, and, and maybe see some sort of oversupply in the market. But of course, something to Keep an eye on. Indeed. Okay, thank you for sharing that. So I think I would like to just slightly turn away from the markets and just touch on how you guys manage commodity price risk. So I'm interested on how you guys individually would look at commodity price risk in general, considering that you both sort of sits on slightly different sides of the fence and you look at the approach from a slightly different angle. So maybe if I start with you, Paul. Sure. Uh, so, you know, for industrial companies, there's a bit of tension in the sense that what a business unit cares about is its budget. It doesn't really matter where the market is. And in that respect, they're a little bit like a, a process or an importer that's just looking for margin. I'm with a, a category and I worry about the market. So uh, not necessarily just the budget, but, you know, obviously where we are in the market cycle and, and our competitive posture. So, the most important thing I would say is, um, you know, Mars has been around for 100 years, for example. We're a structural short. Hopefully, we'll be around for another 100. So, you know, we're short forever is having a neutral point. So we obviously need a, a, a minimal amount of a lot of these products to run our factories. And so, you know, the, the most important thing is to determine what that neutral point is. And then you can vary your position, obviously, off of that. The neutral point is not just to run your factories, but also from a financial point of view. You know, if we were in a situation like 2011 again, for example, what can you do as a business? You know, do you have any pricing power? Are there some other levers that you can pull? So, in that sense, I'm a little bit like a financial advisor. I've got to figure out 
you know, what risk tolerance we have. It could be different in different geographies, different segments. Our food group might be different than our confectionery group, and then try and, and tailor some of the positions we take around that. Okay, thank you for that. That's interesting. And as I say, Stefan, you're probably coming at it from a slightly different angle. It would be interesting just how would you, how do you go about thinking about conceptually commodities price risk? Yeah, well, my approach when when I I am advising uh, more the commercial side that really look for the market in terms of hedging and protection, what I always try to to put is bring the the correct or the most suitable strategy for that specific moment. So it's not just necessarily, oh, I need to belong in the market. Okay, but how can you belong and what's the best strategy to get long at that specific time? And of course, according with the client needs, the corporate needs, because sometimes it's uh, there are constraints in terms of cash flow for the moment. So some pr- products might not be suitable because might require a little bit more cash flow to, to keep the position on. So that is sort of the way that I approach and always try to, to look at exactly the specific product that is most suitable for that profile of client and what he's looking for at the moment. So uh, uh, Paul, maybe start with you and then I'll uh, ask someone the same question to, uh, to you, Stefan, but you know, how have commodity markets evolved over the past few years, you know, can you share any specific examples, you know, whether it's sugar or grains or, or any other markets that uh, that you might be have touched? Sure. And, you know, unfortunately, I've kind of lived, I'm old enough, I can say I've lived a lot of the history. The, the biggest thing is I think commodity markets have been financialized. And so today they're considered an asset class. You know, that was not true if, if you go back, certainly to the, the beginning of my career, not as much as, as they are um, today. And I also think, you know, the other big change is uh, obviously how Jake and I started speaking that technology, I think, has disrupted a lot of these markets. If you look at, and you know, CFTC data, depending on which market, 50%, 60%, if, if you look at some of the currency and debt markets, it's even higher than that, but trades are actually being done uh, by algorithms. And so I'm not sure for a computer if a second is the equivalent of a day, a week, a month, a year, or a decade, but the time span in that sense has also changed as well. I think obviously the world changes every day and hedgers have to adapt. There's you know benefits, obviously risks associated with all this, but I'd say the biggest change, and you know, and if we go back all the way, probably the the financial big bang in the 1980s got kind of the ball rolling and a lot of what's happened in technology, but I'd say the, um, the fin- financialization of, of commodity markets where they're considered an, an asset class. You know, uh, Stefan, how about, uh, how about from, from your side, you know, how, you know, how have yeah. more commodity markets evolved? Yeah, I, I would add on top of what Paul already said, I would also mention, I think that the information, it's more distributed. In the past, farmers in, in the, the field didn't have the access of information that they have nowadays. So I think that makes a, a big difference. You don't have too much opportunity of arbitrage as you used to have. And also one point that the technology really 
evolved, but I would say partially, because in my point of view, I think that we saw an evolution in terms of technology in the front office, in research, you know, in gathering all this information that we have in the markets, and also in the execution side. So algorithms to, to execute strategies and, and all that stuff. But if we look in the backbone, in the back office, the structure is basically what used to be if 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So we didn't evolve that much yet in the back office, but I think that we are starting to see some projects and see some pilots projects going on that, that can really make some significant changes and, and improve quite significantly the, the efficiency in the back office. Yeah, that uh, that is really a theme that, that was out of a book. I just finished uh, The World for Sale, you know, the history of commodity trading. And that was just a, that information access is... Such a such a common or just distant evolution. So, yeah. How do hedge funds use artificial intelligence to generate hundreds of millions from trading iron ore, nickel, and crude oil? Learn answers to commodity questions like this with experts from the forefront of research and industry at the J.P. Morgan Center for Commodities at the CU Denver Business School. Join us on Wednesday, July 21st for an online information session on academic courses, non-degree certificates, and professional education offerings. You can also visit our website at business.ucdenver.edu backslash commodities for more information. Um, Stephanie, just another question if I could direct to you. You've had a, a long and varied career within commodities, and as you currently speak to a lot of corporate, commercial, and financial institutional type clients. Is there anything you could share with us about what you think it is to be successful or to have a successful career in commodities price risk? Well, uh, of course, keep updated on top of everything that it's, it's happening in terms of, of production that might affect, affect the supply of that specific commodities. Keep an eye in the evolution of the markets, you know, new, the new markets that are opening in those commodities. And also, I, I think it's more and more important. We have a little bit of coding knowledge. That would be some sort of, of tip that I will give to the new entrants. Paul, are there any key lessons that you would highlight to to folks when it comes to you know taking an active approach to commodity markets? Obviously, it can be quite dangerous. I think if you don't have good process, uh, Stefan talked about you know back office systems compliance. So it's obviously a very difficult business, and and particularly to have acceptable returns over a significant span of time. And so there really has to be a very good structure in place so that all that can happen. So in, in that sense, it's, you know, it's quite complicated. And, you know, what we're discussing today a bit is you have to constantly be evolving and adapting as well. The actual trade that gets placed is the tip of the iceberg in terms of everything that's going on in the background so that over time you can do all this with a, an acceptable level of risk. A comment that I just picked up on a minute ago from Stefan, who said you need to stay on top of things. And with all the new sources of information that are becoming available now, how, and this is a question to, 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 to both of you, how do you guys stay on top of things? How do you manage your information? You know, there are so many different factors that can drive 
prices across all the agricultures. How do you guys manage that 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 flow of information? Well, uh, in terms of, of filtering, uh, I think that with time and experience, uh, you start to realize uh, what re- are what is really important and what what are the points that you need to keep an eye on, but. One good source that I would say for general public to get information, I think that Twitter is a it's a fantastic tool to to get in touch with knowledgeable people and to know what they are thinking about. Uh, but apart from apart from that, uh, we have professional tools that you know help us manage all this flow of information. Uh, Bloomberg and Reuters uh, and all these vendors they they provide a very good way. Uh, to filter the relevant information that you think it's important for your business. Yeah, you know, and and I guess this is the crux of the issue. So, and Stefan mentioned, you know, information has been commoditized as well, and there's so much out there, so it can be a bit overwhelming. And I think, you know, the way I think about it too is that um, the difficult thing is it's not just the data, but it's the perception of the data. So, you know, in today's world, everybody's getting pretty much the same information at pretty much the same time. And it's it's trying to figure out how ultimately people are going to react to that. So I'm, you know, probably you have to be a voracious reader and, and uh, have some personal contacts. And I lean a lot. We have an internal research department, but, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, but I, I think it's helped me a lot in my career, done a, a, a lot of, of study and, and thought around human behavior, because ultimately that's what, what drives these these markets. And it's very unpredictable, which is what makes it quite fun, you know, at the end of the day, and sometimes can be quite frustrating as well. You know, building on that a bit, uh, you know, are, are there any uh, specific data sets or tools that you'd encourage uh, listeners to, to look into? You know, maybe starting with you, Stefan, and Paul, if you could follow up. Yeah, uh, well, I always recommend to to look for uh, official websites. So USDA for US uh, information, Conab in Brazil. So always try to look for official available information. So that that I think it's it's the most important the the, the source that you are looking the data. Yeah. So no, there you know there's a lot of really good information from official sources, and so USDA would certainly be one of them. The CFTC would be another, and I think you know you, you guys mentioned it before, but you can even go on some of social media and you know get in a chat room for farmers, and sometimes you know that can have really good real time information on on weather. Uh, you know, was I able to get my tractor in the field and you know, I think the starting point is is definitely some of the the public information which is available, you know, to everybody, and um, it's quite good. Um, just something that you mentioned a minute ago, Paul, the need to understand human behavior and and understand how humans interact in the markets. Do either of you guys have any opinion on or? Do you believe there is a role that artificial intelligence can play within the commodities markets or, or using it as a tool for gathering in market analysis? No, absolutely. And I think, you know, th- this comes back to the question around data. I think, you know, there's so much data that it's not realistic to think that I'm going to be able to, you know, gather it all, parse through it. And so this is where I think there is no alternative but to delegate you know, in that sense, uh, to artificial intelligence. We've never had so much data available, downloadable, 
and even you know if if you like to do things uh, directed by a human being, you've got to have the support of of AI behind you. I think. Yeah, and I I agree. I think that the volume data of data is so huge nowadays and increasing, and and artificial intelligence definitely can can help interpret all this information, play out scenarios, and you know bring uh, another spectrum or another way to to you know see the market building on that you know what what do you make of the 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 way that uh, you know the role of ai has has developed over the past few years you know maybe at your companies or in and then the wider market listen you know obviously disruption sometimes isn't you know fun for people that are going through it there's some complaints to to about spoofing in the sense that you know, if you try and, and trade, sometimes there are bids and offers that are withdrawn. And but, um, you know, I guess at the end of the day, I don't question so much why things are they. You know, they are that way. And um, you know, at the end, the value of a lot of these markets, I think, has increased a lot because of the liquidity that's you know provided by AI. I guess is just the latest in a long line of maybe not traditional hedgers. Um, so you're always going to have, I think, some people that are concerned. Um, but, you know, the fact is a lot of the volume, as I said, is already, you know, has a huge participation from uh, from algorithms. And, you know, markets seem to be working fine. I think they're still as useful as they've ever been. And I don't see why we're going to go in a different direction. Guys, that was really informative. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, the time has caught up with us yet again, and we are now on the home stretch for this particular podcast. But we always like to finish off with a couple of questions with regards to careers and any advice. So if I could ask Stefan first and then Paul, do you have any career advice or anything you would like to impart on any of our either students that are listening in or people that are early on in their career about how they could establish themselves in a sort of commodity procurement role or how they could get by? Yeah, I think that one of the most important points is be curious. Look for information, question stuff, question everything that you can and, and try to look for those answers, of course, in a rational and, and a trustful uh, way in trustful sources. So curiosity, I think it's it's one important point. And, and also, as I mentioned, coding capabilities, I think will be more and more important. I would say that I undervalued the necessity of the skill when I was starting. Uh, and nowadays, I see that it's, it's really uh, something that if I had dedicated a bit more, I, I would have a, a, an edge. And I think that this will be uh, for a foreseeable future. Technology is always growing and, and as some say, software is eating the world. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, there's so many different ways to look at it. Um, and the latest of which I think you guys have mentioned, there's room for, for people with a technology background now. You know, specifically around a lot of what I've done in my career and what I do now, it's uh not for everybody. The hardest thing, I think, in, in risk management is the ability to take a loss. And there are a lot of studies that show that the, the pain of a loss is twice as big as the joy of, of a gain. So, you know, you've really got to get to know yourself, I think, and um, what drives you and what you can kind of tolerate in terms of, uh, of setbacks. You know, people sometimes use a baseball analogy or other things that, you know, this is a 
it's a game of, of failure mostly, and you try and, and limit those and then have, have the, uh, the successes be, be big enough to compensate. So that brings me back, I guess, a lot to uh, behavioral finance, behavioral economics, but also knowing oneself. And, and the more you know yourself, I think the better you can be as a risk manager. You know, last question here, uh, and, you know, I'll probably start with you, Paul, because uh, Stefan, and if you have anything to add, I know you, you mentioned, but on, on, on learning coding, I, I'd echo that with my own uh, uh, background. But uh, any, any key things you wish you'd, you'd known at the start of your career that, that you know now? Yeah, so I'm a complete technology dinosaur. Um, so I think, you know, that that certainly would have helped. You know, I, I think a better understanding of the back office, so the, the plumbing of how, you know, the, the world works in terms of how markets clear. I don't think I, I probably early on in my career spent enough time, you know, understanding, again, I would call it the, the plumbing, right, of everything that, that's happening in the background. So if I had to say one thing, it, it's really fascinating too, but I, I think it's also very helpful in terms of understanding um, some of these markets a bit better. All right. Thanks. Uh, any Anything to add on that, uh, Stefan? I think the back office is about to get disrupted. <laughs> I think that we are, we are starting to see some signs that uh, this system is, has some fatigues. People are starting to look for better solutions. And, and to me, it doesn't make any sense that you, you live in a, in a completely technological environment with all these systems around and we, are still, we still need to wait for, let's say, three days to clear a check or you know, two days to clear a stock purchase and all that things. So that, that is its, its own point that I think it's, it's really evolving and we will see some big changes in the future. Well, again, thanks uh, so much, Stefan and, and Paul, for for joining us. Very interesting. I, you know, I think Stefan Butler and I would agree that uh, that we could talk another uh, hour easy with with you both. Absolutely, yeah, no, it was very informative. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for for having us. So that's it for today. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would encourage you to subscribe and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to come on the show as a future guest and you think you've got something contrarian to say, please do get in touch. My email address is jake at chipredict.com. Today's show was written and co-hosted by Stephen Butler and Tom Brady. Special thanks to Erica Hyman of the JP Morgan Center for Commodities at UC Denver and Maria Valentina, who produced the podcast. Thanks very much. See you next time.